You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Haggai. Here's Nate. Well, in Haggai chapter 2, we discover the necessity of perseverance in the work of the ministry in obedience to the Lord. Perseverance is a highly underrated word or thought in our world. You know, in, in this culture, we love to start diets and exercise programs or even marriages and ministries. But we don't often think of the perseverance that is required to see these things to completion. And in Haggai chapter 2, the Lord wanted to speak to the people of Israel there in Jerusalem who were rebuilding the temple concerning perseverance. This message was incredibly necessary and couldn't have come at a more perfect time because the people had been rebuilding now for less than a month when this second message concerning perseverance arrives. Now, just to refresh your memory, in the book of Ezra, it tells us that they had gone back to Jerusalem at the command of King Cyrus, who was paying for the rebuilding project, but through discouragement and fear from the people that were living in the land at the time, the people of Israel abandoned the work for a period of about 15 years. And so the temple sat untouched for fear of the nations around them. And then over time, eventually apathy had begun to settle in. The people had begun to pay attention to their own homes and claim that the time to rebuild the house of the Lord was yet future. And so God sent the prophet Haggai to rebuke them for their apathy and stir them up in their giftings to go out and rebuild the temple. But still... That conviction would not be enough. They would need to be a people of perseverance. And so let's check out the prophecy that Haggai gives to the people. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, uh, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And so the Lord immediately asks them three questions in this prophecy. Question number one was this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Now, There are some possibilities, or there is the possibility that Haggai himself was an older man who had been alive long enough to see the glory of Solomon's temple, pass through the captivity, and then be returned back to Jerusalem for this rebuilding project. But the first question Who is left who saw the house in its former glory? You know, the days of Solomon, when this temple was beautiful and people came from miles around to see its glory. The second question, how do you see it now? How do you see it now? Now, even in the book of Ezra, there were those who 
when the, when the foundation was laid for this temple, before the great discouragement and before they left it abandoned for a period of 15 years, before all of that happened, they had laid the foundation and the young people rejoiced. They'd never seen the glory of the first temple. They rejoiced, they celebrated, and they basically threw a party in response to the temple foundation being laid. But those who were older, who'd been around since the days of Solomon, uh, and or uh, the days of Solomon's temple, I should say, uh, those people began to weep uh, because they knew that the foundation of this temple was as nothing in comparison to the glory of the temple of Solomon. So he asks number two, how do you see it now? And the third question is designed to draw out the truth from within them. And he says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? You know, in other words, just admit it. You're looking at what you're building now and you feel like it is absolutely nothing. And so God is surfacing for them some of the negative feelings that they had had about the new work uh, that they were doing in rebuilding this temple. And God, he understood. He understood the anxieties of the people, the concern of the people. He understood the, you know, discouragement that was settling in. And I think what God is doing is very simple. He's, first of all, trying to identify. He wants them to persevere, so he's trying to identify the points of discouragement. And for them, the point of discouragement was very simple. This building is as nothing in comparison to the last temple. And I just wanted to say at this point that discouragement is incredibly dangerous to the work of God. You know, I think for many different reasons, but let me give you a few. You know, discouragement is dangerous to the work of God when we lose our initial excitement, which is inevitable. Discouragement comes when there are delays in the work. Discouragement comes when there is outside opposition and criticism. Discouragement comes when there is pessimism inside and comparisons inside. And I think discouragement comes when someone has a wrong view or definition of what brings success. And if I could say it like this in comparison with this text and what these people were going through, a wrong view of the former glory is dangerous to the present work of God. You know, so often I've seen this take place. Someone had attended a wonderful church in the past. They'd lived in a wonderful city in the past. They'd had a great house in the past or gone to a great school in the past. And it taints the work of God in the here and now. They can't enjoy their current church. They can't enjoy their current city or house or school. They can't enjoy those things because they constantly have the lingering memory of the former glory infesting or invading their minds. And so... God wants to call that to the surface so that he can cut it off and deal with it. A, view, a wrong view of the former glory is dangerous to the present work of God. And so God wants to show them the present glory, that there is some. And so he says in verse 4, 
He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Notice that God pronounces this phrase of be strong upon everyone, the governor, the high priest, and the people. And he is, you know, exhorting them and urging them in this direction because he understands that in order to persevere, they will have to have the right attitude. They will have to say, we are going to be strong. In other words, God is saying to them, don't quit. Don't give up so easily. You know, have boldness, have passion, have strength and have courage. So perseverance requires this attitude of saying, I am going to be strong. But then he goes on in verse four and says, work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Work. It's one thing to have the attitude that says I'm going to be strong. To, to do the Psalm 27, 14 thing of wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. But then beyond saying that you're going to be strong, perseverance also requires action. It requires the right attitude, strength, but it requires action, work. You know, obviously we understand that they could have all of the motivation and the right attitude. They could have all of that and still the temple would never be rebuilt. They would eventually have to actually work at building this temple. And I say that because it's so interesting how in our modern times somehow we can easily become satisfied with simply being motivated. As long as I hear a message about marriage and I feel convicted and compelled and all of that, then I feel like I'm getting my marriage back on track. But unless you put some effort in, your marriage won't get back on track. That ministry will never get launched. Your life will never be repaired and you won't earn that college diploma. There's conviction, but then there is movement. You know, Christians are not a group of people who receive great pregame and halftime speeches, but then forget to actually perform on the field. No, we want to be motivated and have the right mindset, but then actually go to battle and do the work. And so the Lord says to them, be strong, but also work work, work, work. God wanted them to know uh, him and his power in an experiential kind of way. Now he goes on and says in verse four, I am with you. You know, as you work, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse five, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we have some incredible prophetic material. 
God, first of all, shows them that there is glory in the here and now. They've got to have the right attitude about it. They've got to work for it. That God would be with them just as when they had come out of Egypt, that they did not have to fear that the Spirit of God was with them. But in verse 6, he goes on to tell them of the future glory of the temple. Now, sometimes this is beneficial. In doing the work of God, it is good to have an eye upon the future. Sometimes in the here and now, you can grow discouraged with slow growth or lack of fruit. Sometimes you're even discouraged as you look backwards into the past. But it is never discouraging to think of the future that God has prescribed. And so God begins to prophesy in verse 6 and says, Thus says the Lord. And he says also in verse 6, In a little while, in a little while, notice a little time marker there, yet once more in a little while. Uh, this tells us that there is something that is not necessarily immediate, but imminent. Uh, I believe here that we've got a prophecy concerning the end times and the millennial reign of Christ. He announces in verse 6 and 7, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now this sounds a little like Jesus had declared concerning the time after the great tribulation in Matthew 24. He said in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. And I think Jesus was prophesying of a time after seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation, which is still yet future in human history, where the sun would be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and Jesus will visibly return with a loud trumpet call from heaven and gather his elect together from one end of heaven to the other. And so when he says in verse 7, that I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. I believe in one hand, he's probably referring to actual literal treasures in God's millennial kingdom. But perhaps he's referring to the Messiah himself. And he says that in those days, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, he'll give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And peace is the perfect description of the messianic millennial age, the, the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He came once and he is coming again. And I believe this describes his future coming for his bride and for his people. And the glory of that temple will be greater than the glory of any of the previous temples. You remember the temple of Solomon? It was beautiful. Really a construction that had been instituted from the heart of David. You have here Zerubbabel's te temple. Uh, the temple that is being rebuilt by the people in Haggai's day. Uh, you have Herod's temple. 
who rebuilt that which was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes in 169 BC. He restored the temple. Now, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and we learn in the New Testament that the current, present temple is uh, our bodies. The body of the believer is the present day temple. But in Revelation chapter 11, we read that there is yet a future temple during the end times, uh, time of great tribulation. Ezekiel 40 and 42 seems to describe the millennial temple yet to come after the great tribulation. And then there will be an eternal temple and And that will be the absence of a temple because it says in Revelation 21, verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in that city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And so peace is promised in this glorious and incredible temple. And, you know, perhaps you're discouraged in the work of the ministry. Well, you should be encouraged by the great future that God has secured and promised by the blood of Christ. Now, verse 10, we move on to the next prophecy. It says that on the 24th day of the ninth month, we have now a two-month gap in between verse 9 and verse 10. Two months later, Haggai comes on the scene to prophesy once again. And here he's going to prophesy to them concerning their hearts. And so he goes on and says, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 11, Ask the priests about the law. Now here he's going to ask the priests to interpret the Old Testament ceremonial law. Now, of course, I should mention that the priesthood had descended from Aaron. And uh, this was the Israelite priesthood. And of course, now today, the priesthood in the church era belongs to the believers. We are, in one sense, operating as a kingdom of priests. And so God is going to ask these Old Testament era priests to give some basic interpretations about the Old Testament ceremonial law. And so let's see what God asks them and what the point of these questions is. He says in verse 12, if someone carries holy meat, right, you know the law. So if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, does that food that he's touched, does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean, all right, so first you had a question regarding holy meat, clean meat. Now here in verse 13, he says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered in verse 14, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. This is a stern rebuke from the Lord. The first question is designed to communicate a simple truth. He asks, if someone is carrying holy meat in the hem of their garment 
or the fold of their garment, and the fold of their garment touches something else, stew, wine, oil, any kind of food, bread, whatever, does that food, because it's come in contact with something that is holy, become holy? And the answer, according to the Old Testament law, was no. And the point that is being made here from God is that holiness is not transferable. You can't take a holy thing and touch something that is unholy and expect it to become holy. And uh, the people needed to see this, that living in the holy land and offering sacrifices and doing the work of building the temple, these things did not make you automatically holy. All right. And they had kind of focused all their energy on simply just getting back to the Holy Land and offering sacrifices, but had neglected the house of God. And so, in other words, holiness is not something that you can catch. It is not like sneezing. Uh, you cannot catch holiness. But it's interesting because in our modern era, we have our own little good luck charms that we think will lead us to blessing and holiness. Prayers from an individual or certain pastor a church building or a church cathedral, worship music, listening to Christian radio, putting our kids in Christian education, church attendance or reading the Bible. We think that these things will magically somehow cause us to be holy. But there has to be a real interaction with them, a real obedience. You've got to roll up your sleeves and build families and marriages and friendships and churches. But but God's second question was, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, you know, the wine, the oil, the stew, the bread, if an unclean person touches these things, does it become unclean? And the priests answer and say, it does become unclean. And so God's second point is, as much as holiness is non-transferable, uncleanness is transferable. It's like a sickness, like a disease. We often will believe the opposite, that holy people will rub off on me, but not unholy. And so here he's telling them, he's saying you need to be careful. Unholiness or uncleanness can affect everything about you. And so God announces in verse 14 that this people, he says, what they offer there on the altar is unclean. In other words, uncleanness hinders the work of God. Uh, their lack of building, their lack of priority for God had made everything they did unclean. Selfishness, their ego, their personal agendas, personal glory have no room in God's work. So it's very important to deal with, in the line of God's questioning, the dead body. And the dead body they needed to remove was the unfinished business of the temple. Now in verse 15, he goes on and he asks them to consider something. He says, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, think about life before you got right and before you started rebuilding. How did you fare? Verse 16. Now we remember how they fared. It was a horrible and miserable existence. We saw that in chapter 1. But he describes it a little bit further. He says, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, 
there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. They knew that they were living in difficult times. And God was disciplining them in a very strong way. Consider, verse 18, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. And so the Lord announces to them, he says, listen, I want you to consider, you know, this was a confession and repentance that was going to take place. And he says, consider now, you've, you've started building and I want you to see that from this day on, now that you've been building, I am going to bless you. In other words, if God's house was first in their priorities, they would be a blessed people. And I think the same carries forward today. You know, if we want to avoid a leanness of soul, it's important for us to prioritize the kingdom and the house of God. Now, verse 20, we have our final prophecy. He says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of that month. On the same day now, this prophecy is given. Speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. This is a prophecy individually for Zerubbabel. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. This is the sovereign power of God. He will ultimately rule and reign. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is an incredible promise God is making. He's talking of his coming victory. But here in verse 23, he says something that would be very special to Zerubbabel. He tells him, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Well, the reason that this was special to Zerubbabel is that his great-grandfather had been a very evil man. And so God had rejected Zerubbabel's grandfather from being the king. There was all this rebellion and all of that. And God, in prophesying of Zerubbabel's grandfather, said that he would even if he were a signet ring on my right hand, he would tear him off and give him into the hand of those who seek his life. This is from Jeremiah 22, verse 24 and 25. And so Zerubbabel had heard of these curses that God had given on his distant relatives, that even if they were a signet ring, God would cast them off and throw them into captivity in to Babylon. And so here God is announcing to Zerubbabel that he's not going to cast him out, but he's going to put him in a great place of a position 
and blessing. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. The promise here isn't to cast him out. The promise here is to keep him. And this is just the wonderful grace of God upon Zerubbabel's life. And so Haggai the prophet used to stir up the people of Israel to love and good works, stirring them up to rebuild the temple. And Haggai would pass the baton of prophecy on to Zechariah who would continue to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest to continue the work of God. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.